We were we will get through the end of chapter 16 in the Gospel of John. We're on the threshold of the Garden of Gethsemane, the prayer, the great high priestly prayer, and then our Lord being arrested, falsely accused, taken away to be beaten, scourged, and crucified on a cross. But not until he has a few more words of encouragement for these 11 disciples that he has been ministering to now in our last few ver- uh, chapters here. And we see him continuing to pour into these men uh, all that he can. I mean, the time is the time is growing short. We're mere hours from his arrest, so uh, the time is getting real narrow here. So if you have your Bibles, open up. We will start. We'll pick it up in verse 16 um, and see what we can glean from these last verses of this chapter. He says in verse 16, and this is the Lord speaking, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. So they're confused as to what our Lord is saying. Nothing different than he's been saying for a long time. But Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's stop there for a minute and pray. Father, Lord, we ask now that you would open our ears. Lord, open our hearts up and our minds to receive what it is that you were speaking to your disciples on that faithful night that you were arrested. And let it, uh, let us find meaning in, in these words as well. And Lord, that you would encourage us as you encouraged them with these same words. That we would understand that they apply even to our lives today as they did to these men 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray that you would use the foolish, uh, foolish preacher to speak what you want the people to hear today, that your spirit would speak through me, that my lips might move, but your words would come forth, or that it would be about your glory and, and not ours and not mine. So, Lord, be exalted from this pulpit today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in this chapter... In this section of the chapter, I should say, we see our Lord go from the lofty heights of that Trinitarian Godhead teaching that I talked about last time, where he was explaining and showing that there's a, an order, a, a subordination, if you will, in the, in the Godhead. And he goes from addressing them about that to addressing the sorrowful, confused hearts of these men that are in his midst. We are now mere hours from Christ's arrest in the garden, as I said. So the time is growing short for them to get a grasp of what it is the Master is trying to teach them. He has just told them that the Holy Spirit is coming. 
that he's going to be their guide, he's going to be their guide, he's going to be their helper. He's trying to give them everything he can to encourage them to not give up now. We're so close, he's saying. But they're sinking further into despair. They're still trying to filter everything that he has been telling them through that, that earthly filter, that physical kingdom that Israel gets to be on top again filter. And it's causing some great confusion in them. And let me just say, when we are confused and don't understand what the Word of God is saying, sometimes we need to take a step back and look at what filter are we trying to interpret His Word through. What are we trying to interject into here so that it says something we want it to say? We call that a filter. It's like we used to tell our children. When Thomas and Emily were young and and they would find something in the Scripture that didn't make sense or they couldn't reconcile through their their own reasoning or what they thought to be true. And, and maybe it was because we had told them something that we were off track on or whatever, but we you would tell them, listen, if you have a problem reconciling Scripture to what you think is true, the problem is always with you. It's not with the Word of God. We know there are no contradictions in here. There are no are no errors, as some would say. If you can't reconcile it, the problem is with your finite mind. And these disciples, if they are to ask questions of him, they had better get to it, as he's telling them here, in a very short time, in a couple of hours at most, you will not be able to ask me anything, he's saying. A little while, and you will not see me. That's what he said. And, And this got me to thinking... How short our seasons of grace really are with those loved ones we have. Maybe with a parent that you sought wisdom from, or a teacher, or even a mentor. How short that season of grace is before they're taken away. And there's so many things we, when they're gone we wish we could have asked them or talked to them about. And then this is, what, this is where these men are. <clears throat> And though they may not be out of our sight, as Christ would soon be to these men, but our loved ones who have gone on in death, they're not out of our sight. He has taken them from our presence, but never out of being, never out of our thoughts, just out of our sight. And this is the lesson that these men would soon be taught. As the Master condescends from the lofty speech about the three persons of the Godhead to meeting these men in their sorrow and their, their confusion about the time. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. But what did the Savior mean? He's obviously puzzled these 11 men, as is evidence from the, the next verse. What is this that he says to us, they ask? Well, I hope to show what I believe the Savior is saying here in the last portion of John 16th chapter. I believe he is setting three ideas or three antitheticals, even though I know that's not a word, or seemingly paradoxical paradoxical statements before them. He's setting some things before them to get their minds thinking in the direction he's trying to take them. Then I want to look at the physical... Uh, first, the physical meaning of the spiritual, and the spiritual meaning, I'm sorry, of what our Lord has just put forth to his trusted disciples. And then the sorrow of these men versus the joy in the Savior and the joy and peace that he promises. And then finally, I want to look at the world's blight versus the people of Christ's hope. So we've got three sets of seemingly, like I said, paradoxical statements. So let's see what these hard statements of the Savior mean. In verse 16, he says, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. This is not the first time that they had heard such language from their master. If you turn back to a page or two to John 13, John 13 and verse 31, 
we catch up to the Lord talking to these same men. He says, it says, so when he had gone out, he said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, listen, he says, I shall be with you a little while longer. So he's saying the same thing here, right? I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and he gives them a new commandment, right? But it was obviously that they didn't understand him then or now. And if if we read in verse 36, we know that because Peter says, he says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So they're not getting it. And look over in, in chapter 14, right across the page. The first two verses there, or three verses there. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know and the way you know. Still not sinking in. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? They're not getting it, see? In verse 19, he says it again. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. But they're unresponsive. And I maintain that they were so fixed on this earthly, physical kingdom that it tainted their understanding. It's the yeah-yeah effect. You've heard me say the yeah-yeah effect. It seems to be prevalent on my job sites. I tell a guy, start telling a guy, listen, I need you to go down and do... Yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. Let me finish. That's what... The Lord's telling him, listen, I'm going to go, but I'm going to, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we got it. When are you going to restore the kingdom? No, listen, I need, I'm going to go to the cross and be crucified, but it's a good thing for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When are you going to overthrow Rome? I mean, this is what I could envision these guys doing. And it seems now that our Lord repeats the same things, but in parable form this time. Maybe hoping to awake them from their stupor of sorrow and make some sort of impression on their mind. And apparently it worked, judging by the next verse. But as it always is, the master had more in mind than just awakening them to his arrest. Because there they would lose sight of him for sure, at least bodily. But I maintain that it was there that they would also lose sight of him spiritually as was evident by Peter's denial of him three times before the rooster crowed. So they not only lost sight of him bodily, physically, but they lost sight of him spiritually that night as well. One commentator said this, quote, their faith was eclipsed, end quote. And we saw evidence of this in Luke 24 after uh, when he had arose from the grave Remember, he came back and he caught up to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Caden uh, read about this in John or um, Mark 16 last week. He caught up to these guys. They're on their way to Emmaus, and their sentiment was really probably what all of the disciples were feeling. They were telling him, he goes, what are you guys talking about, and why are you sad? And they said, well, where have you been, man? I think, don't you know what's happened over the last three days in Jerusalem? They tell him all the things, and he said, and they said, and we had hoped that this was he that was going to redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since all these things happened. So you see, their mind is still on. He was going to restore Israel. He's going to put the Romans under their their control instead of the opposite. As I said, Caden read last Lord's Day in Mark 16 where Mary Magdalene came to the others and reported that he's alive. She saw him outside the tomb. She says, they're alive. He said, she said, 
to them, he's alive, but they did not believe. And then those two that were walking with him on the road to Emmaus, when he finally revealed himself who he was, they came back and said the same thing. But these 11 wouldn't even believe them. Their faith had been eclipsed. They were in the darkness of doubt and could not see Christ with the eye of faith. But it only lasted a little while because he revealed himself to them shortly. Remember, he came back and he rebuked them for their unbelief. And then he disappeared again out of their physical sight. But I do believe after that moment, they never lost sight of him spiritually again. He disappeared from their sight and he wandered for 40 years. He came in and out of their midst for 40 days before he ascended. But I would say that this is no doubt the main meaning behind our Lord's words here. He was talking about those days immediately surrounding his death, his burial, and his resurrection before the ascension. But I cannot help but think there is a much deeper meaning in here for the rest of Christianity. Christ breaking through death to life on the cross obviously had a great impact on them, taking them from sorrow to joy, temporary sorrow, but lasting joy. Spiritual, lasting, lifetime joy is what they had from that time on. Steyer wrote this, quote, Thus, as the way of the disciples through sorrow to joy between the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord was already for them something preparatory and typical. It becomes to us a type of the way which all of his future disciples have also to pass through that godly sorrow which distinguishes them fully from the world into the joy of faith and life in Christ Jesus. End quote. So there's more meaning to this than just his being killed, put in the tomb, and raising on the third day and revealing himself. That certainly was part of it. A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, you will see me. And I do believe this is in reference to the time between his death on the cross and his resurrection from the, from the dead. This is the first fulfillment, or the first set of little whiles, uh, if you will. The physical sight that I mentioned. But there is a deeper, more intimate meaning or application here, I believe. And it has to do with the last part of the verse, where he says, because I go to the Father. And so, that they did not lose sight of him spiritually again, after his ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit back for them to gaze upon at Pentecost, right? But look with me to Hebrews. Keep your hand in John and look with me to Hebrews 10. There's another little while, another coming back. In Hebrews 10, he says in verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And what is that promise? Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. See, there's apply application to us as well as these men. After this present interval at the Father's right hand, all believers will see him as he is and will be forever with him in glory. As I said last time, these disciples should have been, they should have been so happy and, and, and elated that their Lord got to be reunited with his Father and go back to be with the Godhead in, in heaven where he left, take his seat upon that throne of glory which was rightfully his. They should have been so happy for him, but they couldn't get their eyes off of themselves. It's the scene in Psalm 24, if you will. Keep your hand in John. Let's, let's get, on, get in on some of that glory. Psalm 24. Here's the, here's the sun 
returning back to heaven, back to the Father, after he came down, did all that he was commanded to do, all that he was commissioned to do. And here we see he's going back to heaven. He's ascended back. He's done everything he needed to do. And here he is. And this picture this scene, and I, I won't be able to do it justice, but Spurgeon does such a wonderful job of painting a picture with words of the Lord returning. He's, he's coming back. He's leaning forward. He's striding in his power. And he's coming back to the Father. He just completed everything he was supposed to do. And it says right here, and he says, comes to those pearly gates or whatever we want to say in heaven. And he says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And Spurgeon talks about the angels scaling the wall, trying to get a glimpse of this mighty one coming back in his glory. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen? What a scene. They should have been so thrilled for him. Because I go to the Father, he says. Remember, he went to the Father as one who had finished the work, completed the mission, finished all that the Father had given him to do. And therefore, he was returning as one who was entitled to a rich reward. A.W. Pink said his reward would be bestowed upon him personally, but also upon the people that he had purchased for himself. And his returning to the Father enabled him to send the Holy Spirit, which enables them and us to see him. So we will see him again. We are seeing him and we will see him again. Because he went to the Father, he will come again and receive us unto himself. It's John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. That is where we see him, not in a mirror dimly as we do now, but we will see him as he sees us then. Amen? Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. The disciples seem to be faced with a paradox. What is this he is saying? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will. We do not know what he is saying, they said. They wanted to ask. They were talking amongst each other, hoping he wouldn't hear, but he didn't have to hear because he knew their hearts. But why wouldn't they ask? I think it was could have been one of two things, or maybe both. They, I think they were probably a little bit ashamed to not ask him because they should have known what he was talking about. As I went back and showed you, he's been saying this all along, telling them, the Son of Man's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the authorities. He's going to be arrested, crucified. But on the third day, he will rise again. So they should have known that. So it was either that or they really didn't want to know how bad the news was. And we kind of do that sometimes, don't we? We kind of just pretend like we know there's bad news coming, but we don't really want to know it, so we kind of stick our head in the sand like the ostrich, or we do the whole la-la-la-la-la-la thing when somebody's telling us something bad. How many of us do that? How slow we are oftentimes to search for light, to seek for answers. James said, you have not because you ask not. I believe God has put things in his word in such a way that their meaning cannot be easily understood. A casual, careless reading will not produce what it is intended to mean. You say, why? 
Why, preacher? Why would God make his word hard to understand? I'll tell you why. So that we have, it forces us to our knees to ask him to show us. It forces us to get serious and get alone and put our phones and our TVs, turn our TVs off and get alone with him and his word and read it and see what it says. That's why. We've got enough easiness in this world. We've got enough stuff to make us lazy. God's not going to contribute to that. He wants us to get on our knees and ask him to show us what does this mean. The men and I are studying Proverbs on Tuesday morning. And the repeated theme is search for wisdom. Search for godly wisdom as one would mine the depths for treasure or, or diamonds or gold. <coughs> Excuse me. Wisdom is that valuable that we are to be going with everything we can to find it. And where do we find wisdom? Where do we find godly wisdom? Right here. It's in these pages. If God is all wise, then his word should have all the wisdom in it. Correct? but not when we just lazily, carelessly peruse through it, but when we put forth the effort and study the deeper truth. And if we don't know, and we, we, there's other resources, we can ask those who are more mature in their faith, what does this mean? What, I love Jake's his inquisitiveness. What, is, what does it mean? He's not afraid to ask. We should never be afraid to ask a question. There's no such thing as a stupid question. We always say, well, that's a stupid question. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If you don't know, ask. Because notice our Lord, he doesn't just answer their question directly. Okay, this is exactly what I mean. He doesn't. He never did, did he? They would ask him a question. Nicodemus came to him and said, Lord, we know you're a teacher sent from God, a man from God. And he says, lest you be born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus didn't ask him what he needed to do to be saved. But Jesus knew his heart. He, he gave him what he needed to know, not what he was asking. These men are asking, and, he, and he's not answering their question directly. He says, Jesus knew what they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will see me. Again, a little while, you will not see me. Notice what he says. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. The disciples seem to be faced... Oh, I already read that. As the Savior stood before these 11 men, just a couple of hours at most from his betrayal and arrest, he assures them of their deepest fears. You say, well, how comforting is that? He does. He says right here in verse 19. 20, most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. But, he says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Yes, you will lament and weep when I'm taken away and killed. And if that were not bad enough, the world will rejoice thinking they have won a great victory in order to add to your sorrows. He's telling them, this is getting real. This is getting real right now. Tonight I will be arrested and taken in and they will beat me and scourge me and mock me. And by the end of this weekend, I will be hanging on a cross dead. And they were going to rejoice at your sorrow. And we know that his prediction came to pass. When we read that Mary Magdalene, after seeing the risen Lord, came to the men and found them. Where? How did she find them? It says mourning and weeping in Mark. And the two men on the road to Emmaus were talking and were sad as they went along their way. And I wonder how often the words came back to them during these three days and while the world rejoiced over a dead Jesus, how their sorrow must have filled their hearts. But the world rejoiced. Is it any different in our day? Is 
Is it any different for the Christian today? Sorrow is our lot as well, right? Otherwise, how could we identify with the man of sorrows? We sing that, man of sorrows. Or the apostle when he says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul was no stranger to the sorrows and struggles and trials of Christ. And when we think about our loved ones and friends who have made themselves an enemy of God by the rejection of His Son, it should cause us to weep and lament. It should cause sorrow to fill our hearts as well when we think that there's so many out there who are lost, who don't know the Lord. But we do. So we should be telling them would you hold something so valuable from somebody? If you knew somebody had a, a horrible disease, would you keep the cure within yourself and not tell them? Well, I don't want to offend them. I, I don't want to offend him. Yeah, he's dying and I have the cure, but this would just be offensive if I told him that. Shame on us. That is what our Lord meant when he says right here, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish or the joy that a human being is born into the world. When Mary left the empty tomb, it says she ran with fear and joy to tell the disciples. The disciples themselves had great joy when they saw the risen Lord. And when he had ascended back to glory, they returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. And what was it that turned their sorrow to joy? The fact that he died and rose again. And notice, it doesn't say that their sorrow gave way to joy, but that it was turned into there's a difference. Their sorrow didn't just give way to joy. It was turned into joy. The cross of Christ, that emblem of suffering and shame, as we sing, became the source of all their joy. The thing they dreaded most became the source of all their joy. Turn with me to Galatians 6 for a minute. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul had to say about that old rugged cross. Galatians 6, right towards the end, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul knew that there was no other way to the Father. There's no other way to heaven. It's the ultimate paradox. The world kills Christ and thinks it has won a mighty victory. They kill us Christians, and again, they think they have won. But in each case, the Holy Spirit uses both for their defeat and to the glory of God. How many times have you heard where martyrs in some foreign nation get murdered and brutalized and, and destroyed and before long the church is thriving in that area. They say the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. It's the ultimate paradox. The more they kill us, the stronger we get. And believe me, it's coming. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where are the victory? And then he relates that sorrow to joy experience and joy experience to a woman giving birth. Now you women who have had children know, I'm sure in your first one, if you were honest, your first child, you were saying, this is going to be an only child. I'm not doing this again. Look at your husband. You did this to me. <clears throat> but yet many of you have had three, four, five, six children. So what he's saying here is true, right? The reward far outweighs the pain. 
All right, so we've looked at both the physical and spiritual of the little wiles, and the sorrow turned into joy, both temporary and eternal. Now let's look at the two worlds that the Christian lives in. It says right here, then he said, or then his disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly to us, and no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Wow, that's quite a turnaround there. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Do you now believe? These men were on such an emotional roller coaster. The master has been trying to convince them that he must go away, but that he'll send the Holy Spirit to guide them. He has promised them that he is going away to prepare a place for them in his father's house, that he will come back for them, that where he is, there they will be. He's given them all these things, these things to hold on to for hope, but they just they weren't getting it. And now all of a sudden, they bow up and find their spines and confess that now they believe in him. Yeah, we believe now. Bring on the trials. Bring it on. We're ready. Bring it on. The persecution. He knew better, didn't he? Do you now believe? Peter, do you now believe? Within 12 hours, you'll be denying that you even know me. James, Philip, Andrew, do you now believe? The rest of you, I tell you the truth, within a few short days you'll be locked in an upper room, hiding out, wondering how you're going to get back into society without being run out of town and mocked for what you profess to believe. Wondering what went wrong. Was all this for nothing? you now believe, he tells them? Every one of you will scatter and leave me alone. Remember in Acts, Peter, nothing was happening. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. The other said, we're going to go with you. How many of us can attest to making a great boast in our faith how much resolve we have and that we will surely die and lay down our lives for our Lord and our faith only to be humbled and crushed under the weight of reality. I pray every morning I, when I'm in my prayer time I pray for the persecuted church. And then I pray that when it comes to America and it will that I would be willing and able to stand and give my life for Christ, that I would not run and cower, but that I would give my life for Christ. And I always say, and I always clarify, I know that I cannot and I would not apart from the grace that comes from Him to do it. And you're fooling yourselves, any of you, if you think you will apart from that grace. I know me and I know men. All right, let's move on and try to wrap this up. <clears throat> These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. These are the last words that our Lord spoke to these men when they were all together before going into the Garden of Gethsemane the last bit of encouragement before he was to be arrested, falsely tried, beaten, scourged, and crucified. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Let me ask you guys something. Where do we as Christians, where do we as believers dwell? Where do we live? You say, well, in the world. Or more actually, in northern Idaho. You're right, we do. We live in northern Idaho, don't we? That is true. But my Bible says we are in Christ. The believer is in Christ. But we're in the world as well. 
Let me ask you another question. Where do you find peace? Where do you find peace? I would answer, not in the world. Not, not in northern Idaho, even though we, we do have much more, it's more peaceful here than it is in a lot of these Democrat-run cities that are just left to the, to the lawless. So there is a sense that we have a little more peace here, but that's not the peace I'm talking about. My peace comes from being in Christ, not in northern Idaho. Brother Jess read it this morning. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Let me show you. Paul knew if he wrote to the church in Ephesus where peace comes from. It says in verse 2, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in who? In Christ. Just as he chose us in who? In him. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoptions as son by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in who? The beloved. That's Christ. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound <clears throat> toward us all in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in who? Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in who? In him. Verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him, we could go on. It's the Christian is found in Christ. Everything that we are is found in Christ. If we are born again believers, we are in Christ. We have been justified. We have been sanctified. We have been glorified all in Christ. And though this world promises peace, I want none of it. I want none of the peace they're trying to foster in the UN or these other foolish councils of men. I want the peace that Christ promises. You? Amen. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Can you imagine what these men were thinking as he was hanging on that cross, after he just tells them, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And within a few short hours, he's hanging on a cross, beaten beyond recognition as a man. Dying. He's going to die right there on that cross. Can you? I can't imagine that they didn't have their doubts and go, this is how you overcome the world? Could you imagine the confusion? He claimed to be God. He was God. But yet here he is dying at the hands of men on a cross. Have you really overcome the world, Jesus? We tend to think of men like Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Nero or some other conqueror when we think of those who have overcome or who have overtaken the world, right? But our Lord our Lord assures these men that he has overcome the world and its evil systems. He has conquered death and the grave, which is our greatest foe, right? And it wouldn't be till after his resurrection that they would understand this. And then, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, they would grasp that he truly had overcome the world. And yet they would, each one, be persecuted and killed by that same world and its systems that he overcame. Say John, who was 
boiled, I think, boiled alive in oil and sentenced, exiled to Patmos. But all the other ones were killed by that world and its system. Now, brethren, I know that we are blessed in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We walk in Christ. We have our very being in Christ. But I also know that we are in this world. We have to live in this world. We're not in heaven yet, right? We're still here. And I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. We may be, we may be in for one of the roughest years in our lifetime. And I'm speaking to the older ones here. But you young ones have never seen it. We've never seen it. I've never seen adversity in my lifetime. I've had it easy. If you grew up in this country, you've grown up in ease. Just admit it. And I was talking to Lori this week about the cycle of man. You know the cycle of man that um, strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. And it's a cycle. Well, we're in the cycle right now where weak men have created hard times. And we're fixing to go right on in the full way. We've had it too good for too long and men have become weak. At least in this nation. I believe that when, when Christ came to this earth, they were in the exact same period of the cycle. They've had 400 years of no fear of the Lord, no rebukes from His prophets. Everyone was doing what was right in His own eyes. All the religious elites were, who were ruling over Israel were holding the people to that, but all the while they were submitting to Rome. Sound familiar? Compromising what the Word of God had told them to do. They made up their own laws and rules to live by, and while, all the while claiming that it was the law of God. And nobody. Nobody stood up. Nobody had any moral fortitude to go to these, uh, these Pharisees and these scribes and these hypocrites, as Christ called them, and said, no, that's not the way it is. That's not the truth. You're making that up. You're a hypocrite. Like today. Nobody in our government, or I should say very few people in our government, are looking to the old paths looking at history and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this nation has to be under judgment. We must stop killing babies. We must stop fornicating and sodomy and every other form of perversion under the sun. This nation is not only perverse, but we are purveyors of it. We strike deals with other countries saying, we'll give you billions of dollars in aid but you've got to accept our transgender policies. That's a special kind of evil. When you're not satisfied to live in your own filth, but you're going to force it down somebody else's throat. Now we need to fall on our faces and repent as a nation. From the top down, like Nineveh. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he didn't really want to go there. He made a half-hearted plea. I'm sure his, his, uh, his speech was probably less than enthusiastic. And yet, the king, all the way down, tore their clothes, fell on their faces, and repented. But we know that this must happen first. Where? In the church. In the church. Because judgment begins where? In the household of God. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. It's a promise. That's what needs to happen. But meanwhile, we live in this world. 
but we are in Christ as well. I don't want to leave you guys without any hope. So let us walk accordingly and trust in the divine promises of God, our Savior, our great God and Savior, right? He said, a little while and you will see me again. Don't lose hope. We will see him in a little while. And our sorrow will be turned to joy. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so long-suffering, so patient with us who have lived our lives for ourselves. We have laughed at your word. We have mocked those who have tried to follow you. And yet, here we find ourselves in that same boat, that same place that you saw fit to change our hearts, to take those heart of stone out of us and give us a heart of flesh that we would believe, that we would walk in your ways. Lord, we know that this world promises anything and everything, but it's hollow, vain, worthless deceit. Lord, you are the only source of peace and life. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know that and doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day that you visit them, that you would change their heart from that heart of stone and give them that heart of flesh to follow you and trust in you. That we would have that peace that passes all understanding. We know that this world is full of tribulation and full of trials and it's fixing to get a lot worse where we live. But Lord, we know that our hope is not in our governor, our president, our Congress. It's in you. And we know that you will do what's right, even if we have to be judged, and we need to be. But Lord, we put our, we put our trust in you and your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.